Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of Earwax, Amoeba's very first podcast. My name is Hillary. I'm here with Cody. What's up, Cody? What up? What's up? And today we're going to be talking about an album, I'm assuming, that has been a favorite of yours for a long time. Long time. Right? Okay. Uh, we're going to be talking about Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1. Oh, this is right up my alley. I'm so curious to hear reactions from people who have never heard of this band before <laughs> and uh, are curious like what it sounds like or like who's in the band maybe even. It sounds exactly what it you would think it would sound like <laughs> based on who's in the band. Yes. <laughs> um, it is, oh man. This this checks all of my boxes. <laughs> I know it does. <laughs> it does. I know it does. This is actually, I think I told you, um, this is the first record that I bought at Amoeba, at Hollywood. Aww, at the Lo- yeah. that's so sweet. Yeah, it was, I don't know how many years ago now, probably mm-hmm. six or seven, um, and I had just moved to LA, and mm-hmm. you, I mean, you gotta go. Yeah. You gotta go to Amoeba. <laughs> you gotta. And um, I popped in, was thumbing through, uh, couldn't find anything, couldn't find anything. And then uh, I don't right in the face. It was just right. I was like, you know, I wonder if they have a traveling Wilbury section. Mm-hmm. And they did. Not that they had a bin one of the card. biggest record stores in the world. I wonder if they've ever heard of this small little indie band. Well, but the thing is, is that they only have two albums. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know if they would actually have a bin card yeah. or if they would like be filed in one of the members's. Yes. But they had their own bin card uh-huh. and they had a nice used copy and I snapped it up so quickly. Uh, and I it is probably the most played album on that is on my turntable. I just, it's just such an That's easy cool. record to listen to that I throw it on just like I'm cleaning the house I'm gonna, th- I'm gonna throw on the traveling wheelberries. Nice. That's very nice. For me, this was my I I obviously known who they were. But I never actually sat down and listened to a Traveling Wilburys album before this last week. Um, so it was really fun to go through. And with each song, I was like, this this person wrote it. This <laughs> yeah, person wrote yeah, it. Yeah. That This one. You could like hear the influence through each song. And that was like a really fun guessing game to play also. Yeah. And I think that like when I said earlier that it sounds exactly like you would think it's because you can hear that like mm-hmm. you can hear like oh this is a Bob Dylan song yeah. or this is a this is definitely a George Harrison song mm-hmm. um Tom Petty Jeff Lynn Roy Orbison you know just some these names. are the people in the band yeah just some <laughs> in names. case you're wondering <laughs> um a super group mm-hmm. we we were talking a little bit before recording about like the idea of a super group this for me is the most fully realized idea of what a super group could be. Mm-hmm. There have been numerous attempts with varying levels of success yes. of super groups. We have Cream is like the earliest version or the Yardbirds. Yeah. Um, but that was like technically not a super group yeah. because they weren't famous right. yet. It like launched them off. Cream is always referred to as a super group. They were all individually fairly famous at the time mm-hmm. um, when they formed. Bad Company is another yeah. one. Um the Highwaymen is probably the closest mm-hmm. parallel um, with uh, Johnny Cash, Waylon Willie, and Chris Christopherson. Yep. They didn't write together, though, mm. um, from what I could see. Um, who were the ones that we, we talked about? We talked about... Um, well, I, we, I mean, we got Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Oh, duh. <laughs> yeah. They, they're pretty, four cho- pretty well-known dudes. That's that. I, I did not... Th- 
how how I overlooked that of all of them. I was also thinking about uh, them crooked vultures. We oh, have Josh Homme yeah. from uh, yeah. Queens of the Stone Age, Dave Grohl, most famously from Nirvana, uh, Zeppelin's bassist John Paul Jones. Oh, man. And then uh, The Smile, who we're going to mention a couple times in this episode, Tom York and Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, and then Tom Skinner, who co-founded Sons of Comet. And he also worked with Greenwood when uh, he was scoring Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, which is one of our more favorite Paul Thomas Anderson (laughs) films in this house. Uh, Boy Genius, right? Boy Genius, yes. Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, Kids See Ghosts. Does that count, right? yeah, totally, totally. It's two people, Uh, but... What was the other one that I thought of? Oh, Trio with uh, uh, Dolly Parton, Emmylou Harris, and Linda Ronstadt. Mm-hmm. That's pretty That's pretty. Yes, good. definitely. Um, I don't know that any of the ones that we've mentioned have quite the cachet, mm. the collective cachet that the Traveling Wilburys do. The, I feel like the closest would have to be Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but even even then, like... Nobody is more famous than the people in the, this group. Like yeah. at the time when they like, were forming, who's the least famous of the Wilburys? Jeff Lynn, maybe. Yeah, definitely Jeff Lynn. And it's Jeff Lynn. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and also if you don't know who Jeff Lynn is, he is ELO. Yeah, yeah. That's absurd. When like the least famous dude is the guy who yeah. wrote all of ELO. And I mean, I'm sure we're gonna have. A lot to talk about with Roy Orbison. I'm a massive Roy Orbison fan. And my main takeaway from listening to this album was like, man, I love Roy Orbison. 100%. <laughs> like, I, I, his uh, songs on this album were all standouts for me. And I listened to one uh, on a loop many oh. times this week. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, another thing is that when I started listening to this album, I thought about it a couple times before where I was like, I really want a tattoo of Roy Orbison. And I was talking about it, especially this week, because I had been listening to this album so much and yeah. it really just like solidified yeah, that yeah. for me. I had a lot of feelings around it, especially because this was his very last recorded mm-hmm. performance. Oh, and what um, a way to go out. No kidding. And uh, then I was informed by somebody that that is actually a reference to Waterboy, which I have never seen. Apparently, there is an inside joke with the movie Waterboy where somebody gets uh, oh, Roy Orbison tattooed right. on their ass. It's Henry And Winkler. I was like, I don't want to get a Waterboy reference tattoo. I've never even seen that oh, movie. Oh, I totally forgot. Yeah, it's Henry Winkler. Oh, <laughs> Wouldn't that's that hilarious. be such a prank on myself? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It really ruined it for me. Wow, that's a deep cut reference. Yeah. I, wow, I totally forgot about Somebody that. Somebody told me, they were like, oh, like in Waterboy. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> I, I really like that we chose this record, obviously, because it's one of my personal favorites. But we've been doing this kind of dance um, around all of these artists mm-hmm. who, like George Harrison, obviously, of the Beatles, is a little too big for us to cover on the show. <laughs> yeah. Bob Dylan, a little too big for mm-hmm. us to cover on the show. Tom Petty, ELO, Roy Orbison. So, what did we decide to do? We're just going to cover them all in all, one big All, all at one once. Big <laughs> 
but it is kind of an interesting deviation. It's not one that you think of. It's not this album is not something that when you think of Tom Petty, you're like, but the tra- the traveling wheelberries is probably his no, and certainly not what George Harrison mm-hmm. or Dylan like. There, it's not a record that floats to the top of their queue, despite being pretty fucking good. No, it's hilarious. Like uh, I would say especially among music fanatics, they're all extremely well-known people, but people don't talk about the Traveling Wilburys very often at all. Yeah, not in relation to the rest of their careers. Discography, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, we've... <laughs> yes, I, it, yes. Like, it has to match up against Rubber Soul. It has to mm-hmm. match up against Highway 61 Revisited. It has to match up a new world record. Like, mm-hmm. it's steep competition. Yes. Um, and it, I think it just, we'll, we'll get into it further. I think it just does a great job of being what it is. I totally agree. And I know exactly what you're talking (laughs) about. So now that we're picking up a little bit into the beginning of the year, we finally have a couple of in-store events to talk about. Pretty good ones. Mid-January, yep. To start us off, both at the Hollywood and San Francisco locations on today, (laughs) on today, Thursday, January 25th at 5 p.m., don't miss it because we're doing a listening party for the Smiles new album. I'm sure we've probably talked about them a lot on this episode by now, but um, it's going to be really cool. I think we'll give out a bunch of prizes and stuff and uh, you get to hear the album a little early. New album called Wall of Eyes. Yes, that's the album. It's a sick album title. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday, February 14th, Valentine's Day at 5 p.m., Devin Ross be doing an in-store performance and signing for the new EP Oxford Gardens. And if you miss them at the Hollywood store two days later at the San Francisco store, they'll be doing the same thing um, at 5 p.m. Very nice. So there you go. Two chances to see Devin Ross at Amoeba. Cool. Cool. All right, Spencer, tell us what we got coming out this week. Well, first things first, this Friday was supposed to be the release of Andre 3000's three, count them, three mm-hmm. LP release, New Blue Sun. But unfortunately, it's been bumped to March 22nd, but make sure to take that with a big grain of salt. Because mm-hmm. you never know when those LPs are going to come out. Dang it. That being said, we have some big releases, starting with Tom York and Johnny Greenwood's side project, main project, yeah. <laughs> uh, The Smile. They are obviously both very famous from Radiohead. They are releasing a brand new album entitled Wall of Eyes on CD, vinyl, and blue vinyl. Popular indie band Future Islands are releasing a new album entitled People Who Aren't There Anymore on CD, CD, vinyl, and clear vinyl. Next is indie powerhouse Ty Siegel with his new album Three Bells. You can get that on CD and vinyl. Alkaline Trio's brand new album Blood, Hair, and Eyeballs. Is coming out on CD, vinyl, and Blackbone vinyl. Huh. Blackbone <laughs> vinyl? Uh, also, indie singer-songwriter Torres has a new album releasing called What an Enormous Room, which will be available on CD, vinyl, and Blue Jay Blue and White vinyl. 
getting a little That's creative. a lot of colors. It's pretty creative okay. with these colors. And last but not least, we are getting a cloud white vinyl release for the soundtrack to A24's recent tearjerker, Past Lives. Hmm. Hmm. Very nice. Yeah, all kinds of stuff coming out this week. Yeah, All good kinds stuff. of colors. All kinds of mm-hmm. colors. And you know what? We embrace every kind of color there is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making a statement. I just felt like it was time, Using your platform. It was time to be brave. Yeah. You know? <laughs> You're so brave. I You're feel so brave. brave right now. Thank you, guys. Any yeah. more compliments? Or... Uh, no. No. I'll see you next week. See you next week. I'll see you next week. <laughs> Okay, Cody, I bet you're excited because it's time for us to get into it. So excited. Yeah, we're talking about The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1 by Traveling Wilburys. It came out on October 25th, 1988. Uh, Like we have mentioned before, this album is, I mean, this band is constructed by only incredibly already famous musicians. (laughs) And uh, it was nominated for album of the year at the grammys and it lost to one of our other picks which was faith whoa yeah. i did not know that oh yeah that's a you know what that's a really worthy it's a it's like if you're gonna be knocked down by somebody i did dang. not know that but that's... how powerful do you feel as george michael like <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> i'm so sorry did all of you lose wow. took down a beetle <laughs> yeah. and dylan and tom Pe- what pretty badass that's so cool i know especially because this album while it uh has a lot of really great songs it's certainly not as progressive as faith was you know so uh it's nice to see that faith won yeah yeah i think that that's that's fair yes it is fair it is fair start us off what do you got the story of this album makes me giddy because it reads like classic rock fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, before we really get into it, I just want to say that if you take away just one thing that we talk about um, from this album, it's that everybody in this group loved the shit out of Roy Orbison. I was, it, we just spoke about like that we had a similar note up front, and that is basically exactly what I was going to say. Everybody loved Roy Orbison. <laughs> And it was Orbison's last recorded performance before he passed. And it is worth it alone. Even if this album is a hard sell for you, just to listen to it for the Orbison tracks. Every single one of them is on record talking about how sweet he was, how hyped they all Mm -hmm. were to become friends and play with him, and obviously how godly his voice was. Um, I'm a huge Orbison fan. You are too. Mm -hmm. It's hard to call him unappreciated, underappreciated, or underrated. Certainly, but he during, is. Yeah, at, and during this time in his career, he definitely was too. Mm-hmm. I take a lot of not solace, but pleasure in the fact that all of these rock gods mm-hmm. kind of were genuflecting at Roy Orbison, just bowing down, and him. were happy not only to record with him but to become friends with yes. him. Yes, that warms my heart. Totally agree. So the, we've talked about the members of this group. Um, George Harrison, previously of the Beatles, Jeff Lynne of Yellow, Tom Petty, uh, Bob Dylan, and Roy Orbison. Now these are all superstars, superstars. Mm-hmm. Each occupy a space in rock history that is difficult to overstate and far too lengthy 
far too lengthy to adequately cover here. No, no. <laughs> Do some research on them outside of this, or just wait for us to put on an put out an episode on one of them. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Yes. Um, there are variations on the specifics of the story of them getting together, um, but the I've kind of tried to. Uh, hone in on the best or most often repeated sequence of events um, from the various sources that I was able to find. So I'll start if you don't mind. And then like if you find or if you have a differing account or, you know, just hop in. You got it. George Harrison um, had been contacted by his label Mm -hmm. about a B-side for the single of his album Cloud Nine, which was produced by Jeff Lynne. Yes. Lynn, at this time, or around this time, was also producing Roy Orbison's album, Mystery Girl. Mm-hmm. George Harrison played on this album, album as did Tom Petty. Um, and the three of them went out to dinner. Uh, George uh, was like, hey, I need to do this B-side. And Lynn was like, let's, let's rock this shit. And they invited Roy Orbison to attend the session. Harrison uh, called Bob Dylan, who agreed to let them use his garage studio at garage studio in Malibu and the next day George had to go pick up his guitar from his friend Tom Petty's house yes. his casual friend mm-hmm. um, Petty had been working with uh, Lynn in LA on what would become his solo record Full Moon Fever which just take a moment and Jeff Lynn was had just finished a George Harrison solo album he was producing um, Mystery Girl by Will Orbison, which was Orbison's comeback record. He was also producing this Traveling Wilburys mm-hmm. record and Full Moon Fever, which was a monster hit for Tom Petty in the 90s mm-hmm. or in the late 80s. That is what a run of work to be working on like at the same time. That's insane. It's true. And I think he got a lot of these opportunities, if I'm not mistaken, from Harrison in their meeting, which is... Uh, more on that later. More on that. <laughs> <laughs> so they end up showing up at Bob Dylan's garage studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, George said, I've been working on this song. And he has said that he had the opening lines, been beat up and battered mm-hmm. around. But nothing much beyond that um, besides the idea for Roberson to have a section. Mm-hmm. Um, George, uh, by his account, said that he turned to Dylan who had been tending a barbecue mm-hmm. for the, for the everybody else. He was just playing host yeah. at this time, Bob by the Dylan way. Just playing Not host. invited to join. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he turns to, to Dylan and he says, give us some lyrics, you famous lyricist. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they asked him for a title, uh, George uh, looked around and saw a box that said mm-hmm. handle with care. And that's where the, the, the single uh, came around. I saw that Bill Bottrell, who was the engineer on this album, mm-hmm said that the garage studio wasn't re- wasn't really set up that well and was more garage than actual studio. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Dylan had bought some um, equipment from Dave Stewart, but they hadn't messed around setting it up yet. So these dudes are just like legit recording in a garage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not the actual recordings yet. Not yet. It's just them like solidifying this one tune, yeah. Handle, Handle with, with Care. care. Uh, for this B-side. For, for this Harrison. B-side. Exactly. Harrison, yeah. Uh, so George and Jeff Lynn polish up the track, or, you know, kind of polish up. They take Handle with Care to Warner Brothers and say, hey, here's this B-side you wanted. Mm-hmm. We got some randos to hop on. Hope you don't <laughs> mind. And Warner Brothers listens to it and is like, 
What? This is way too good. We are not releasing <laughs> yeah. this at a B-side. Yes. What are you thinking? Can you give us nine more? Yeah. I'm so tired of being lonely. I still have some love to give. Won't you show me that you And thus... Allegedly, the traveling Wilburys were more or less born. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many accounts of like random phone calls. One story has like the three of them inviting Roy Orbison to join and then seeing him perform and then watching him perform. And they're all like elbowing each other, being like, that guy's in our band. <laughs> I know. I know. They definitely uh, are in awe about that very yeah. often. Wouldn't you be? Yeah, are you kidding me? But um, I also love when Harrison is recounting uh, trying to set this thing up and uh, find a studio to perform in. He rings up, he calls up Bob Dylan and he said, Bob, we knew had this little studio. I phoned Bob up. I mean, sometimes you can call him and not get through for years, but he picked up on the first ring and said, sure, come on over. That tracks. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Uh, so the term Wilbury. Mm-hmm. apparently originated during the Cloud Nine sessions, yes. uh, referring to recording errors created by faulty equipment. Uh, uh, George, jokingly re- George jokingly remarked to Jeff Lynne, we'll bury him in the mix. <laughs> and afterwards, any that, that became the term for any like mm-hmm. small error. Uh, George Harrison first suggested the name the Trembling Willberries, yes. but Jeff Lynne was like, how about Traveling Willberries? Yes. Which is better. Yeah. Which, which, which is better. Especially when you uh, understand that the entire concept for this record was they were just a family traveling band, a couple of guys, and they all chose an alter ego that they would assign to their own character yeah. for this album. George Harrison had some experience with this with Sgt. Pepper. Um, they create their alter egos and they really commit to this bit. Yes. Um, Nelson Wilbury is mm-hmm. George. Otis Wilbury is Jeff Lynn. Lefty Wilbury is Roy Orbison. He named uh, he chose the name Lefty after Lefty Frizzell. He's a big Lefty Frizzell Very fan, cool. which yeah. is sick. Uh, Charlie T. Wilbury Jr. Mm-hmm. is Tom Petty. Lucky Wilbury is Bob Dylan and Jim Keltner, who is the drummer, or Buster. he does drum. Yeah, Buster yes. Buster Sidebury. Yes. Because Absolutely. he's not like an official member of the band, but he did a lot of the drumming. And he um Oh, they did travel a little bit to record some of this, um, but he came with them and he's not often mentioned as a part of the band because he's not an official part, but he did get uh, his own name. He plays on a lot of these songs and honestly, he helped write some of these songs, like yeah. rhythmatically, especially. Um, Keltner has also played for everybody. Yeah, he's a huge name. <laughs> yeah, his most notable work includes many collaborations with Randy Newman, uh, Ry Cooter, and three out of four of the Beatles on their solo work. Pretty stout. Yeah, it's a pretty good resume. Pretty good top line of your resume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beatles. Yes. Um, so they have this idea for this kind of alter ego band, mm-hmm. and they adopt their names. They also have um, their lineage fleshed out mm. in the in the liner notes. And Sweet. this lineage or this like backstory of the Wilburys is um, written and credited to Hugh Jampton. <laughs> and I'm gonna just read it, okay? And then I'll see if you can guess maybe who this is. Mm-hmm. 
Hugh Jampton, okay. um, describes the Wilbury history as such. The original Wilburys were a stationary people who, realizing that their civilization could not stand still, began to go for short walks. Not the traveling as we know it, but certainly as far as the corner and back. They must have taken they must have taken to motion in much the same way as penguins were at that time taking to ledges. For the next year we hear that we hear they were going out for the day, often taking a lunch or a picnic. <laughs> later, we don't exactly know how much later, some intrepid Wilburys began going away for the weekend, leaving late Friday and coming back late Sunday. It was they who evolved simple rhythmic forms to describe their adventures. Okay. <laughs> now, if that sounds unnecessarily silly and verbose, that is because Hugh Jampton is actually Michael Palin from Monty Python. Oh, very cool. That makes sense. Yeah. It's like, why not only bring in the big guns for this, you know? From what I could read, all of the members were really, really big Monty Python fans. I was going to say, it sounds awfully British. It is very yes. British. Um, I know that George Harrison had uh, had had worked with, with them, had helped fund a couple of their movies. I remember that, yeah. Um, and and by all accounts, uh, Roy Orbison would entertain people by like reciting skits Some. of of awesome. Monty Python. So they got they got Michael Palin, and I think on their second album, it's Terry Gilliam who wrote. Oh, the, cool! So, but yeah, there you go. Very cool. <laughs> oh, that's fun. As if you, as if there wasn't enough star power not attached to this. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, yeah, I just want to take a second to speak about. How these people even met in the first place, because it is insane that they can all just call up one another and say, do you want to hop on an album for like a while? You don't have A-list celebrities, musicians in I your mean, phone? Some, yeah, some. <laughs> Always so busy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... I want to start off by talking about how Bob Dylan met George Harrison many years earlier, uh, far before this album was curated. Mm. Uh, Dylan met Harrison when he was still in the Beatles, and the Beatles were all massive Bob Dylan fans. Lennon had first turned them all on to him, and they would just play his albums on repeat constantly. The night that they met him... Dylan either gave them or facilitated them smoking their very first joint. Sick. This is a true story recounted by all Beatles. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, Paul McCartney would recall this night saying, I thought I got the meaning to life that night. <laughs> and I went around trying to find our roadie. Mal, 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 get a pencil and paper. I've got it. I've got it. And Mal was a bit out of it. He couldn't find a pencil and paper anywhere. He eventually at the end of the evening found it and wrote down my message for the universe. And I said, now keep that. Keep that in your pocket. And Mal did. The next morning he said, Paul, do you want to see that? Oh, man. He had totally forgotten about it by this time. So uh, when he remembered it, he grabbed it from his roadie. And uh, all it said on the piece of paper was, there are seven levels. <laughs> <laughs> really figured that one out that night. Yeah. Um, Ringo said, and this is a direct quote. That was the first time for me that I'd really smoked marijuana. And I laughed and I laughed and I laughed. It was fabulous. Of course it was. <laughs> Just hilarious thinking about that. And of course, I'm sure Dylan takes very much pride in that story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Like, that's your story is like, I was with the Beatles. I introduced the Beatles yes. to pot. Uh, that's insane. a flex. That's Even a 
just their working relationship, George Harrison and Bob Dylan uh, had so much respect for each other. It's really cool to see. Uh, Dylan would talk about George and say he had this uncanny ability to just play chords that didn't, didn't seem to be connected in any kind of way and come up with a melody in a song. He said, I don't know anybody else who could do that either. Who? What can I tell you? He was from that old line of playing where every note was a note to be counted. Um, which uh, very well described. He was just a huge fan of his and I'm pretty sure he was his favorite Beatle because he would talk about his time in the Beatles as though it had been holding Harrison back because his voice wasn't being heard as much as it should have been both vocally and in songwriting and how he would have blown up if he'd gotten gone solo like him earlier. It's an interesting take. I know. I know, but it's more interesting just to hear his perspective. Oh, for sure. I would imagine Harrison would be Dylan's favorite Beatle. Yeah, that that yeah. makes all of the yeah. sense. Okay, so that's how they met. Um, Jeff Lynn was also an enormous Beatles fan. Shocking. Yeah. I know. Um, he'd met them briefly while they were working on that White Album and recalled it by saying, to be in the same room as the four of them caused me to not sleep for like three days. <laughs> Um, many years later, Lynn had been having dinner with Welsh musician Dave Edmonds. And even though they'd just gotten done spending hours together, as they parted ways, Dave yelled out to him, oh, by the way, George Harrison asked me to ask you if you'd like to work on his new album with him. That was Cloud Nine. Come on. (laughs) And of course, Jeff Lynn was like, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Literally, whatever you say, why didn't you mention this hours At, ago? Yeah, buried the lead. Exactly. Um, so then George Harrison and Lynn flew to Australia together to write some music for this album and watch a Grand Prix together. Why not knock out two birds, one stone? Um, not only did this land him in the Wilburys, this introduction got him production work on an album for almost every single other member of the band's solo work, which we spoke about aside from Dylan, uh, including a credit alongside Bono for the production on Orbison's last album, which we talked about. Um, not even to mention production work for most members of the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, Lynn said, people used to warn me never to meet my heroes because they disappoint me. But I got to meet all my heroes, the Beatles, Dylan, etc. And they were wonderful. Yeah. It, I'm sure it helps whenever you have the talent that he does to, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. to get you in those rooms. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, I have one more. Yeah, I'm yeah. so no, sorry. No, 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 don't. This um, is awesome. The last bit I have is about Roy Orbison. Of course, save the best for last. Yeah. You know? um, for Orbison, the, in- the introductions had been done a long time ago because the Beatles used to open for Roy Orbison. That's right. Uh-huh. And at one point, uh, by the time Orbison had gone over there, I think, to the UK, uh, they'd just blown up big enough that they had to change the billing so they were co-headlining. Uh, <laughs> I know, imagine. Dude. Um, but even so, the Beatles were huge, huge. Roy Orbison huge. fans. So much. Uh, and everybody in the band was yeah. in a, a big Roy Orbison fan. You know, Tom Petty would talk about how every time they'd start thinking about recording the album, they would be awestruck all over again going, wow, Roy Orbison's in the band. <laughs> and years later, Roy Orbison's son, Roy Jr., said that they wanted his dad to join the band so badly, Harrison got down on one knee and quite literally begged him to do it. 
Dude. And that's the thing is like for all of the, well, not necessarily ego, but for all of the cachet. Yeah. Right? Like George Harrison is a Beatle. Mm-hmm. It, in the world of rock, it gets it gets no bigger. Mm-hmm. Like you listen to someone like Dylan freak out over George Harrison. You mm-hmm. listen to someone like Tom Petty freak out over mm-hmm. the Beatles. Like a- everyone from Ozzy to Lemmy, that is the group. Mm-hmm. And George Harrison, who is, I mean, a quarter of the biggest mm-hmm. rock group, and he's getting down on his knees yes. and begging Roy Orbison. That is a level of respect and appreciation that I, it blows my mind. It's well-earned, obviously, yes. but it absolutely blows my mind. You have an entire band of famous people perfectly curated by a Beatle. And every single member of that band, including the Beatle, is like, but Orbison's but, really the god but, here. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's Roy Orbison. <laughs> oh my God, I'm embarrassed. And they're right. <laughs> yeah, it's so and true. And they're right. <laughs> they post up at Dave Stewart's house. Yes. Of, of, the, of the Eurythmics. Of Eurythmics. One half of Eurythmics. One half of Eurythmics. They have 10 days to write and record the songs mm-hmm. because Dylan had a tour to start after yes. that. And Jeff Lynn has said that on, about the writing process that they would arrive about 12 or 1, have some coffee. Somebody would just say, hey, what about this? Start on a riff. We'd all join in. It'd turn into something. We'd finish around midnight and just sit for a bit while Roy would tell us fabulous stories about Sun Records or hanging out with Elvis. Yes. Yes. And yes, then they yes. do it again the next day. Yeah. I think they... Uh knew that when they were going there to record, to in order to make this timeline set by Dylan and his tour schedule, they would have to write about one song a day and finish it by the end of the day. It's a tall order for most people, but whenever you have, <laughs> you know, minds like that yeah. at work. But they <laughs> yeah. also said that like that compressed timeline, they mm-hmm. couldn't second guess. Mm-hmm. There was no second guessing. It was just like, that. do that. And so all of that time that is spent like really honing and like working a song and working a song that's all stripped away and you have to trust yourself but you also have to trust everybody else and that like all of your ego has to be set aside because you got 10 days to make this record and you've got a lot of legends to help you do it you can step back and say like okay we can do this yeah just let it go and let it happen. Even Lynn said that from the very first note they wrote to the finalized product, the whole writing and recording process took six weeks total for this Damn. entire album. That's... I also just love like before we even really get into the recording, like the template for this album, I love the idea that for them, this was really just a chance to hang out with their friend. Petty talks about, he said, the thing I think would be the hardest for people to understand is what good friends we all were. It really had very little to do with combining a bunch of famous people. It was a bunch of friends that just happened to be really good at making music. Um, And Harrison loved everybody in the band so much. He would speak a lot about half of his intention with even forming the band is just making sure that he could keep their friendship intact. Yeah. It's and sweet. They've all kind of alluded to George Harrison being the band leader, yeah. the de facto leader. Um, and they've all complimented 
how well he did that. He mm-hmm. would he would apparently audition people to sing the vocal parts mm-hmm. and be like, I think this is a song for you, or I think yes. this is a, a part for you. And for him to be able to do that with all of the, the cachet is the word I'm going to stick with, in the room and navigate it so smoothly and so beautifully, I think that that really speaks to a level of leadership from him that, uh, you know, when you cut your teeth in a group like the Beatles, you see some things that nobody else is ever going to see. And he's well-suited and well-tooled to be able to take a group like this. I mean, he worked under the egos of yes. Paul and John. Yes. You know, oh, man. I'm sure something like this was probably a walk in the park. That's a lot of what comes off, especially about the friendship especially about the friendship aspect of this record is that they were all so respectful of one another, you know, because while Lynn and Harrison were technically producing the record, they were extremely collaborative. Everything was, you know, uh, taken into consideration from everybody else in the band. And I love what you said, too, about how George was holding auditions for each person. Like, they would write a song, and then he would make each person individually sing it so they could see who uh, sang it best. But Petty said this was super intimidating. (laughs) And I quote, because Roy Orbison would sing the song, and then he'd send you up to sing. And it's like, well, damn. Damn. (laughs) This is embarrassing now. Yeah, Roy should always go last in his auditions because, like, come on, man. Can you imagine trying to follow that? He gets two songs. Okay. (laughs) He gets two and leave some for the rest of us. (laughs) So they recorded the songs that Dylan played on and provided vocals for closer to the front of the week because they knew Dylan would have to leave the soonest to go on this tour. Uh, Dylan would say, I think my least favorite thing was having to go back on tour when the album was getting started because I couldn't wait to get back. Can you do that again in Dylan voice? Uh... (laughs) I really don't want to. <laughs> okay. I can. <laughs> we all can. I can. I just think but, it's going to hurt everybody's yeah, ears. <laughs> we, we probably shouldn't. <laughs> uh, after they wrapped up their time at Dave Stewart's house, Lynn and Harrison headed back to Harrison's studio in London to work on the production side of the record. They were so excited and they had so many ideas. They couldn't stop talking about it on the plane ride over from Los Angeles. They were like slowly working it out on that. What is that? Like a 16 hour flight or something ridiculous. I'm sure they're flying coach. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm sure you're right. Oh, that must have been such an awful experience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then after this, uh, after they wrap up a lot of the production, they work on the music videos for all of them, which they are able to complete most of Mm -hmm. before Orbison passes Mm -hmm. away. Um, which is unfortunate, but just before, uh, just a few days before his death, Petty spoke with him on the phone, and Orbison was absolutely elated that the record had gone platinum. He just kept talking about like we did it, like we really did it, and this was like a big comeback for him. Like literally weeks before he passed, mm-hmm. it's such a cool, you know, if you're gonna pass away and you feel like. Uh, some of your discography has like people aren't paying attention to it anymore and then you feel like people are finally listening they get to hear some of the most beautiful songs that you I there's one on here in particular yeah, that yeah. I am obsessed with but um, what a nice way for him to go out yeah for sure yeah. going out on top I mean for sure. a legend total legend totally 
track list? Let's go. Let's fucking go. Handle with care. This was the B-side single. This was the (laughs) B-side. The track that started the whole thing. Ideal song to kick off the album. Just real you have a fusion of three very distinct eras that draw the line through rock and roll history. Sun Records, Greenwich Village, and Mm -hmm. Liverpool. Right? It's nothing short of a miracle that we see all three eras represented on one song. Mm -hmm. That's unbelievable. Of course, Roy Roy Orbison's vocals take this thing to a whole other stratosphere. Can you ima- can you imagine being the Warner exec who heard this pitched as a B side, where mm. you're just like, yeah, this is pretty good, and then, boom. You know what's so funny to think about too is that this was supposed to be a B side for Cloud Nine, which, like, in all respects, good album, terrible album cover. Oh, it's so bad. Brutal. And all I kept thinking as I was listening to this record was like, oh, maybe all the time spent on this record <laughs> is what distracted from the horrible photo. With, with his sunglasses and it's, the shirt. It is uh, offensively bad album cover. It's yeah. like clip art style. Honestly, instantly it reminds me of <laughs> Eric Clapton's old sock. And every single time I see the album cover for that album, I think that is a picture of a dad who just learned how to use the front facing camera <laughs> on his phone. And this is the very first picture he ever took. <laughs> yeah, I actually didn't listen to Cloud Nine for a while because I just the cover was like, man, that's it is bad it's a good album it's a good good album don't let the cover fool you uh handle with care i think is a really smart song um for a bunch of middle-aged rock icons to write and release because it perfectly encapsulates where a lot of these guys are in their careers Mm -hmm. like the line been stuck in airports terrorized sent to meetings hypnotized overexposed commercialized handle Mm -hmm. with care i mean that just is just so poignant and so right on point with like being a Beatle, being Bob Dylan, like they they are all of those things. Honestly, my favorite thing about this song is that it it manages to take a repetitive verse that uses almost entirely just one note in its melody, and it sounds so good every single time. Oh, yeah. It's like very unique sounding. Uh, it's clever. It's a, it's a well written song. And his. Uh, his voice, George Harrison's voice, reflects his writing style so well. Like from the moment he starts singing, you're like, "This is a George Harrison song." Oh, d- easily, <laughs> easily. Yeah, I, I had that feeling a lot while listening to this album. Almost every single song, I was like, uh, "It was a guessing game." I was like, "I know who wrote this. I know who wrote this." <laughs> like I, every single time, and I was right most, most of, of the, the time. time. The the great thing about it is that even though it's very clear who took the lead on these songs. Everybody talks about like, mm-hmm. this was super collaborative. Mm-hmm. People would be pitching lines and we all like everybody wrote more or less every song, but you can kind of tell. Yeah. And there are some songs that a lot of them will say like, look, this song was basically blank song. You know, they wrote almost all of it. We were just there to be like, use this word. Use it. <laughs> The second track is called Dirty World, and if you hate sins, this song is not for you because it is quite lustful. (laughs) For the ending, in which they all start listing off completely nonsensical reasons why the protagonist of the song loves the woman he's singing about, Harrison bought a bunch of magazines, and he gave each member a magazine and told them to just start shouting out phrases they found that fit into the same rhythmic pattern. For example, like, 
Red Bell Peppers, Five Speed Gearbox. That's my favorite. Yes. Quest for Junk Food. Anything that would fit that pattern. And then they each just stood in a circle around the mic and said the and said the ones they'd come up with one at a time. Like one That's right so after the other. And tell me if I I don't get this joke, but there is this documentary where as they're all going around, uh, each saying their line, they keep laughing about how um, one of the lines is trembling Wilbury. Mm -hmm. And no matter how they rearranged everybody, Roy Orbison always got the words trembling Wilbury. And they were like, that's so funny that he has to be the one to say that. And I was like, I don't get it. I think it's what just because the they kept mixing up the order and he it always like they probably had a particular no. cadence and it always no matter how they mixed up the order he it that line but Why is that line funny for him to always I don't think get it's it. the line that's funny. I think it's the fact that he always like gets that line. I guess. I guess, Cody. Uh, listen, I'm not trying to explain comedy to you. I'm just explaining my perspective on it. <laughs> he said, look, I was there. Yeah, I, I was, was in there. the room. I was the sixth was unmentioned member. Hilarious. Okay. <laughs> if you were there, you would have gotten it. Yeah, it's more like you had to be there kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Trembling Wilbury, my right? <laughs> that sucks. Uh, Rattled is a great 50s style rocker. One of my top songs. Oh, yeah. A rare Jeff Lynne lead vocal. I'm pretty sure we're going to have the same fact about this Um, song. Backed with uh, Roy Orbison growls. Yes. Oh, yes. Mm. And Jim Keltner. Jim Keltner. Who should have a writing credit on this song. Yes. Honestly. uh, Because I think it was like day three, Keltner started taking his drumsticks and trying to find new sounds by drumming them on the shelves inside the, the... Sorry. And trying to find new sounds by drumming them on the shelves inside the refrigerator. And they all loved it. I, I saw this little bit where he was he started doing it. Mm-hmm. And then he realized, he said that if you move the eggs back a little bit yes. and you shove the enchiladas over, he's like, it's basically like tuning your drums. It's totally, totally. <laughs> and there's like video footage of them all pulling in mics to capture the sound of the hymn so they don't lose it, experimenting by running the sticks over the little rungs on each shelf and hitting the half dem- half empty glass bottles inside. You got to eat. It's the the fridge is the way of the future, especially for such an organic sounding song. It fit so perfectly into the style they were going for. Oh yeah, it's great. Just kind of making it up on the spot yeah. and going with it. Yes, um, and really shows his contribution is like more than just a sideberry. Mm-hmm. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next song you have? Because mine's not alone anymore. Um, let's go. <laughs> not alone anymore. His song was written specifically for Roy Orbison. Duh. This is slowly turning into a Roy Orbison fan episode, and I am all for yeah. it because this song genuinely might just be go down as like one of my new favorite songs <laughs> of all time. I love this song because when I first heard it, I almost teared up, and then I did actually cry when I watched a video of him singing it later. <laughs> it is so beautiful. 
I swear to God, when I first heard this song last week, my immediate reaction was, holy shit, this sounds just like ELO wrote a song specifically for Roy Orbison. And that is exactly what That's it what is. That's what it is. And it was so satisfying to find out I was right. To that point, uh, Jeff Lynne has talked about his relationship with Roy Orbison and being so thankful that mm-hmm. he got to be friends with him. And he said that uh, uh, Roy Orbison would call him Jeffrey. And that every day he would uh, come up, he would pull up in his car and he would say, like, hey, I've got some really nice cakes in the back. You can come pick out the first one. <laughs> That's so funny. And Tom Petty has said that um, the obviously they were all in awe of him, but that the one thing that he feels really great about is that we all loved him and hugged him all the time. Mm-hmm. And that oh, there that was, was just so nothing sweet. like him as a person, nothing like him as a sound, obviously, um, but that they're all so thankful that they got to express their love from not only musician to musician, but like from human to human and that they I, loved him as a person. I can't say enough about that. <laughs> it really is. And it like even watching this documentary, half of it is just them talking about how much they love him, which is so yeah. fun, especially after listening to it and having that be your main takeaway. Like, uh Lynn was so dedicated to writing this song, he snuck into the studio the night they'd been working on it to change the guitar chords that they'd used, and everyone ended up loving it. And yeah, you're right. He said it was really just a thrill to write a song with Roy Orbison. It was an ambition he'd always had, and it came true, which is great. What I love about this song, and him in general, is that when he's building to the the climax of the chorus, you know that is coming, mm-hmm. it hits, and you're like, fuck, you still got more in the <sighs> tank. Like, there's still more there. And then when he punches the last through, few notes? you're like, you, it's so easy, <sighs> and you still feel like he's, it, you simultaneously feel like he's giving you everything, and he's still got another gear that easy. nobody else can hit. Yeah. And there are so few people like that. I, I have seen Christina Aguilera in concert, and she's another one where she... People compare those to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a pretty direct parallel. Yeah, It's more of an Aguilera than an Orbison, I would say. <laughs> but singers that they have a gear that it never seems to top out, where you're just like, you just keep going. Yeah. You just keep going. And to do that and still also convey this big sense of emotion that Roy Orbison does, he just always feels like he's giving you his soul. rich and like buttery and warm about his voice his the power behind it is insane like his breath control is like i don't even have to think about it he can switch from vibrato to just like a stagnant note without even thinking about it and it's just like he always knows which one the note needs without even having to think about it but my favorite is that uh, he's also pretty funny. Like you wouldn't expect him to be. I okay. This is my favorite quote that I found. Okay. Okay. By now, I've stated that I'm an Orbison fan. I would imagine. Right. I think his voice is pretty good. Yeah. And uh, I could have been Dylan, but I think it was Tom Petty that said, 
Roy would just be sitting on the sofa working on a song and Roy would sing even when he sang soft and there was such a tone, such a sound, such a, a gift, really. We always used to tell him that. Roy, you must be the best singer in the world. And he'd say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no bones about it. Yeah. I love it. So oh. really humble guy. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Because <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what more is there to say? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the next song that I have is Heading for the Light. Um, Let me see. Blah, 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 blah. Um, honestly, I have a little on Twitter and the Monkey Man, but I'm happy to cut that out. Isn't Wait, that, heading for the light. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Heading go ahead. Um, go for it. I don't have anything on that song. <laughs> heading for the light, um, to me, feels like the most George Harrison song on the album. To me, it feels like maybe the most ELO song in the See, album, that's, even okay. more so than uh, that's interesting. What we were just the, talking about. I, I think. Well, so. Yes and no. I think lyrically, it's the most George Harrison song mm-hmm. on the album. There's like talking about like spiritualism, searching for direction, but like a resolve and a confidence that it's all going to figure itself out. The instrumentation and the production is yellow, yellow 100%. Like, without a doubt. The harmonies where he and Jeff Lynne sing together on that mm-hmm. chorus, oh, that just does something to me, man. It is pure magic. The melody feels so yellow to me. It honestly just oh, felt yeah. like a lost yellow track <laughs> to me. The funniest part about that is how everybody would always say, used to say like, ELO, they just ripped off the Beatles. You know, they're huge Beatles fans and you can just hear it and they're just doing the Beatles, which is like okay like i see the comparison there's obviously inspiration there you know but the fact that the both of them wrote this song together is so like screw that you know like we really appreciate what the other one has to bring to the table and we're gonna just mesh those powers together man when they hit that course it's just so beautiful like it's just ear candy um, this song also does something well that to me is often, very often done terribly, which is um, throughout the 70s and 80s, the presence of saxophone solos on rock records <laughs> rose yeah. sharply, and they all almost sound firmly locked in in that era. I think uh, I and many people refer to it as cocaine sax. Uh huh. Um, this solo is like the closest that you can get before I would be forced to call it cocaine sax. Maybe if they'd added more on there, they would have beaten faith maybe maybe right that's true yeah <laughs> um i could probably be persuaded that this qualifies as cocaine sax but <laughs> it's close it's close i like the saxophone solo and i'm generally and on average not one that like oh man this thing could use more saxophone no it has to be perfectly curated perfectly and on this track it works for yeah, me for sure but generally don't put cocaine sacks on your on <laughs> on your on your rock record, please don't. Uh, Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Yes, this was a song that is so Dylan it hurts to my very core. It is Dylan incarnate. Uh, I saw uh, where George had said that Tom Petty and Dylan um, were off talking about a whole bunch of stuff that didn't make any sense to him, <laughs> and that it was because it was all like Americana mm-hmm, references. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Lynn on, on Bob Dylan has, uh, said that obviously I knew all of his work, but what really struck me was how he did it the same way we all do it, but only better words. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, there's a lot of references, either homages or cheeky send-ups of early Springsteen songs. Mm, um, there's like a bunch sense. of references to his songs in this, in the lyrics, and um, this song may be a little bit of a parody of early Springsteen, which was quite verbose. Yeah. it. This isn't my favorite song on the album, but my favorite part of this song is probably the chorus, and... I think he was like improvising this song basically. He'd just like rail through it uh and then change a few lines really quick, immediately take a second take, you know. Um one of these takes he completely forgot about a bit that he'd improvised, but Harrison and Lynn remembered it because they liked that part so much and that part ended up being the chorus of the song that they all uh sang together. It's basically the only credit Harrison takes for the writing on this track is just reminding Bob Dylan what he already wrote. Oh my gosh, imagine being so prolific that you'd forget a, <laughs> a great yeah. chorus. Man. <laughs> Uh, end of the line. Do you have anything? Yeah. Mm-hmm. End of the line is a perfect send off to this record. This is the song that uh, whenever she heard it, Claudia referred to it as the best roll credit song ever. Oh, very sweet. Uh, it definitely has been used a number of times in TV and film. The series finale of Parks and Rec uh, finishes oh. out with this, with this song. Uh, this is probably my favorite Tom Petty performance on the album. I love the verse where he says, maybe some somewhere down the road a ways, you'll think of me and wonder where I am these days. Maybe somewhere down the road when somebody plays purple haze and then mm-hmm. right into Roy's mm-hmm. even when push comes to shit it's just crushing down the road when somebody plays at the end of the line purple haze well it's alright even when push comes to show well it's alright if you got someone to love well it's alright especially thinking of it being like a parting song and then Roy Orbison passes (laughs) like uh, they even this song is like a Harrison brainchild which makes perfect sense especially considering his sentimentality about all of the other members in the band and him not wanting this time to end or not wanting their friendship to dissolve and while Orbison's vocals are in this song, he passed away before the music video was recorded. So in the music video, in his absence, they have a little guitar on his chair and they put like a framed picture of him on the table. It's um very sweet. It's very, I'm not choked up. I'm fine. Very heartwarming. Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there is uh, a quote from Tom Petty where he's um, talking about reflecting on the success of this album uh, with Bob Dylan, and um, they were kind of talking about like the impact this record made, and um, talking about like George kind of orchestrating all of this, and Tom Petty was like kind of marveling at it, like wow, like we like we did it. And uh, Dylan, who obviously is known as a pretty self-serious person, I guess kind of deadpanned, um, looked at Tom Petty and said, like, well, George is really smart. He was in the Beatles, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That guy? That guy. That guy. (laughs) I love that. Why didn't you lead with that? (laughs) I love that visual of just like (laughs) Dylan being so serious all the time and just being like, he was in the Beatles, you know. Yeah. Do you have anything That's else? all I got. Um, as I mentioned before, this record is one of my most frequently played. It isn't 
some groundbreaking era defining record. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Um, this thing flew in the face of every trend of its time. Uh, for me, this is a collection of songs that are endlessly listenable rock royalty coming together and acknowledging that while they weren't trailblazing, like maybe they used to, there's still plenty of gas left in the tank. It's high quality songwriting that you hear from the opening chord to the final fade out. Uh, collaboration can be tricky at any level, which is why supergroups are very often better in theory or as one-offs. It takes a lot of confidence in yourself and trust in everyone else to take a step back and really buy into the idea of iron sharpening iron. But when it works, like on this album or say this podcast, <laughs> the result is deeply rewarding and truly special. Yeah. So whether you've heard it before or never heard it at all, listen to this album. It rules. Thank you all again so much for listening. This episode was really fun to research. So Cody, thank you for the album pick. Thank you. If anybody else has any album suggestions, you can email us at earwaxpodcast at amoeba-music.com. We've been getting a lot of really nice fan emails yeah. and some suggestions. We already have like our next month planned yeah. under wraps. But uh, a lot of these suggestions have been really kind and helpful. And even if we don't respond right away, we are adding them to to our doc so uh hopefully we'll see some of these soon or in the future on yeah. the horizon it just rules knowing that it's connecting with people yes there. absolutely we appreciate any contribution or anything you want to say to us so please email us we love it you can also reach out to us through social media or just check it out uh we have an instagram page and a tiktok page at earwax pod amoeba also has facebook and instagram pages at amoeba berkeley at amoeba sf and at amoeba hollywood and amoeba hollywood has a tiktok page amoeba hollywood uh, head over to amoeba.com and sign up for our email list where you'll get notifications for contests coupons and in-store updates while you're there amoeba.com offers free shipping on music and movies wow pretty what a good sick, deal pretty sick head over to youtube and check out the What's in My Bag series. The latest episode uh, was shot in our San Francisco location with hardcore punk band Drain. Some of their picks include The Cramps, Larry June, Turnstile, a whole bunch more. Um, please rate, review, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Share us with your friends. Um, we love making new friends. Please share us please with your share friends. Please share us with your friends. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you around the store. <laughs>